0: We're continuing our um, series called Awakened uh, on the books, the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians today. And today we're going to be in 1st Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at this letter that talks about sin um, and it helps us to get a better picture of grace and this problem that all of us seem to have to deal with. In fact, I would go ahead and say emphatically from the Scriptures text, All of us do deal with it. It's not just a few people have to deal with this issue. Everyone has to deal with the issue of sin. It is a great, great problem. And here's the thing. If you have a great problem, it's going to require a great solution. The greater the problem, the bigger the solution has to be to reconcile it out, or else you'll still be left with a problem. You'll still be left with a difficulty. You'll still be left with a scenario that needs to be overcome. Now, the problem of sin in our life, the Bible has told us, that we have been given the greatest solution of all. The Scripture has been given to us to provide the picture, the revelation, the the knowledge, the discovery, if you will, of this greatest solution to our greatest problems, and that is the Gospel. There is no doubt that the Gospel is the greatest solution to our greatest problem. What does that mean when we talk about the Gospel? When we talk about the Gospel, we talk about the reality that there is a God who exists who spoke everything into existence. We can see the fingerprints of His work on display around us. We can see it even in, the, in Michigan and the changing of the seasons and how while we sometimes be like, oh no, winter is coming. We know winter is coming. We know it's going to happen. We're in Michigan. Congratulations, you live here. It's a part of that. Um, but, but seasons go, seasons come, we're always going to have some sort of fall, winter, spring, and we're always going to have some kind of summer, fall, winter. And the seasons just keep on display. It's a part of God's handiwork. But it doesn't say that the Bible uh, this, this God that the Bible reveals is not just a God who put things in order and then it just like walked away, but that he is loving. He is relational, He is good. He is active in this creation he has. And he is all those things. But the thing about God that makes him above anything else is that there is no one like him, there is no one but him. And as that, He is the one who has ultimate authority. And in His ultimate authority, He is completely good. He is completely holy. Well, there's a big, big clarity moment in the Bible when we start seeing this. Wow, this is, this God is big. That's why He's God. But then there's a problem that we begin to see. Once the scripture opens our eyes that this is God and who He is, it kind of leaves us also looking in the mirror at ourselves and seeing, all right, there's some incompatibility here, if we're honest. That yes, God created us all, but there's something about our lives that is not like Him, although there's some things in our life that are relatable. We are able to feel, we're able to emote, we're able to think, we're able to ask questions and be rational and those kind of things. But there's something about our life that is incompatible with God because if God is good, completely, and perfect, completely, and what the Bible tells us, holy, there is no one like Him, no one but Him, and He is completely without sin. Guess what? When we look in the mirror, there's a problem. There's a problem. There's the offensiveness of sin. The Scripture tells us this. It gives us this beautiful revelation of who the awesome God is, but it gives us this really bad news. In the middle of that bad news, there's also good news. That while we look at our life and see this incompatibility, God's saying... I am the one that will reconcile it. Because nothing we could ever do, no good works, no charitable giving, no amount of attendance, no matter how many times we try to check off or get ourselves gold stars, nothing could ever save us except the one who we needed to be saved from. God says, I'm willing to save you from My wrath that in all My holiness that will not allow sin to come in My presence I'm willing to step into your place, this place I've created, and I'm willing to live perfectly for you. And I'm willing to die willingly for you on the cross. That I'm the only sufficient one able to fully pay the price. As God, His payment extends to all. As man, it also makes it relevant to us. Because He wasn't just dying and says, Well, I'm God, I'm perfect. I look at Him down here, went to the cross, that's it. No, He died as a man that was fully tempted in all the ways we were and yet was without sin. So His payment counted fully showing His justice. The problem, the greatest problem, given the greatest solution, presents with us this awesome gift, this awesome grace. And it requires our personal response that God has left it in our hands, nothing we could do to ever achieve it or acquire it, but God has given us the choice to take the gift or to reject Him. And in doing so, He shows us that life here today can be transformed, but also eternity that hangs in the balance has also shifted. We share this week in and week out this Picture of the Gospel, God's character, the offense of sin, the sufficiency of Christ, the personal response, the eternal urgency, and life transformation. We share that week in and week out. Because I need to be reminded of it. You and I both need to be reminded of it daily, how important and good this news is. But secondly, when we come in to worship, and we think about all that we've gone through the week, it's a reminder that God has not failed at all in His part of the solution to the hard part of the problem. That God has never failed on that aspect. But then the question sometimes naturally comes up. Alright, Pastor, I have chosen to place my trust and receive what God has offered to me in grace. I, I know I am saved. I have Peace with God as far as eternity goes. But when I think about my week, when I think about my attitude or my thoughts or my actions or my words or some of these things, maybe it wasn't this week, maybe it was a couple weeks ago, but it's still kind of lingering. What about those struggles, Pastor? What am I to do about those things I do after I've trusted Jesus? How am I to face that? What about the struggles of sin after we come to Christ? What, What does the Scripture tell us about that? We need to go back to its authority. What is the emphasis the Scripture places on the problem of sin amidst the church? And today, we're going to look at this letter from Paul and see where he is transitioning from this, this moment of trying to establish the case of this is what it means to have God as your ultimate authority. This is what it means to respond to His grace. And, and Paul has been writing about the, in humble, absolute broken-hearted care for this church he loves. But today we're going to look at it and see what he addresses sin. And not just the theory of sin, active, habitual, ongoing sin within the walls of the church. So stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word, the fifth chapter of Corinthians. If you're in one of our pew Bibles, uh, it's page 1013. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that one home with you after the worship gathering. But I encourage you to use it here and use your Bible whether it's in print or whether it's in digital format. But here we go. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you, being the church, are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the One who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as One who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the One who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I did not mean the immoral people of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Otherwise, you would actually have to leave the world. But I actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, or greedy, and idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? But don't you judge those who are inside? God judges the outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is not an easy text for us today, but it is a part of Your Word. It has been breathed out by You. It is profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness so that we may be adequately equipped for every good work so in that, it is good for us to read this, to talk about this, to seek Your will in it. So help us to do so. Hide me behind the shadow of Your cross and may Your Spirit teach us all today. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. So that's not an easy text, is it? Now, the whole letters of First and Second Corinthians are probably the, the roughest, if you will, the most... um hard demonstration of love that we see in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul of all the letters. All the letters have some kind of correction, save with uh, save the book of Ephesians. Um, but all of them have some kind of correcting of thought processes, correcting of worldview that's going on, and teaching us what is, what is everything in light of the whole big picture, in light of all the Scripture, in light of all that God is and says and does, what is it we're meant to do? Now Paul is writing this letter. We talk about how it's, it's good to understand the text by first understanding the author and the audience and the aim. This, the author was the Apostle Paul, a, a a terrorist, church persecutor, Christian persecutor that came to Christ, came to grace, and his life was turned upside down. He ended up being one, the, the, one of the beginning catalysts of missions to the, to the world beyond the Jewish kingdoms, uh, the Jewish realm, if you will, and Part of that was cities like Corinth. So he's writing to them years after being a part of that church, about after spending 18 months establishing it and training it and getting it off the ground. But along the way, this church, which is surrounded by all kinds of culture that is what we would probably put up and hold up to light as utterly worldly, it had all the trades, all the opportunities, good and bad, in that city to do whatever one willed. This is where that church was at. And some of that worldliness, that culture, had influenced a part of the church. But also, it was not only the influence from the outside, it was a little bit of implosion from the inside. The church was struggling with difficulties because they had apathy to the doctrine of Scripture. They didn't really care whether they learned or grew. They had difficulties because they had lack of devotion. They were devoid of devotion to Christ. They had considered Christ enough to save them, but not the one who held them, the one who kept them, the one who preserved them, the one who was worthy of the, the, um, authority in their lives. And so when we get to this part, after Paul has shared about the fact that there's divisions, there's like, you know, little um, groups that are. Following this person or wanted to follow this person and after sharing about what a, this picture of what humility is and how he really feels about the church and he just says, I am but your servant. I am, I am humbly begging you about all this. He goes on and he tackles. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't curb it. He doesn't try to address the situation without pointing it out. You ever hear people that do that? They talk in theory about the subject. Maybe something happened at work. And instead of going to the person one-on-one, they kind of hold a big meeting for everyone so they can overarch the subject instead of dealing with the one incident. That way they don't have to really face the one person. Okay, this is is what Paul is somewhat doing. He is sharing with the church, but he is pointing out directly what is going on. He's going to handle it head-on. See, the Bible doesn't leave any room for just kind of somewhat, partially, partially, giving oneself to the subject. It has to be addressed face to face. And here, we're going to see a few emphasis on from Scripture about the problem of sin, the struggle of sin, after one has apparently come to Christ. Paul's not addressing someone that does not know Jesus. He is not addressing someone who has never heard of Jesus. He's not chewing out someone, in that matter of fact. No, he's saying, you and who we're dealing with is someone who has claimed to follow Christ. And yet this is their life. There is an incompatibility of what's going on. So what are some emphasis the scripture place of this problem of sin amidst the church? This is number one. There must be a decision about chastity. There must be a decision about chastity. What are you going to do about purity? What are you going to do that shows you are devoted? Not so that you can pat yourself on the back, but so that your life positionally and practically are aligned with where God has placed you. So Paul just comes right out and says it here in this part of this letter that we call chapter 5. It's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so what he's saying is, alright, this is who you think you are. This is who Christ says you are. Now this is the life you're meant to live that aligns those two. But when I hear about this, this is the big deal. The, The parties and the divisions and stuff, I understand that's happening. Paul's addressed those. But he's going right here on target that this is the one that is just mind-boggling. Because what he's saying is, not only is there immorality, if that wasn't bad enough, because it is, but also, there's the kind that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Or your text, if you're reading some of the elders, might say the heathen or the pagan. Those outside the law, those outside the gospel. This, is, this kind of sin is not even tolerated among them. In Roman culture, if a man was caught sleeping with his father's wife, apparently at least one time this person's stepmother, they would be killed. That, that was the Roman law. And the Romans, they did all kinds of stuff. They had all kinds of parties. They had all kinds of reasons to, to get their whatever they want to call it, on Trying to keep it PG in here. But this was not even tolerated. And yet, it's happening among those who said their life has been transformed by the Gospel. And Paul says, and, and, and you're arrogant. Not the person that's doing this, the church as a whole. You guys are arrogant about this because you're not grieved at all. You've not made any kind of handling about the situation. You've not sought to correct this. What's going on? Why are you asleep at the wheel because of this? You've got to make a decision about chastity, about purity. If you're going to be that which Christ says you are, if you're going to make the influence in your community that God meant for you to make, You've got to make a decision about where your devotion is to the Lord, not just in theory, but in practice. You've got to make a decision about chastity. Emphasis number two, there must be a departure from complacency. Look at the second and third verse here. He says, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. He says you've got to stop being complacent here. Because in your life right now, you are allowing your arrogance to lead you into a place of paralyzation. What do you mean by arrogance, Pastor? What does that look like? Well, it means that uh, you haven't dealt with the past allowances. You see, if you're going to have a departure from complacency, if you're going to do something, if you're going to wake up, you've got to have a departure from complacency from past allowances. From those things that were arrogance. Those things that were accustomed. Here's what I mean by that. If you're going to deal with the things that you were accustomed to, there are some habits when you come to Christ, that you're going to have to unlearn. Now, learning something is is good and sometimes difficult. Unlearning something is absolutely heinous at times. Because every pattern of your life has kind of trained you to just be accustomed to this. And breaking that habit is not going to happen out of osmosis, just sitting in church and it happened. It's not going to happen out of complacency. Oh, I'm not going to make a decision and something will happen. No, it's going to take an active unlearning process to remove yourself from that which you were accustomed to. It's going to take a departure from arrogance. What do I mean by arrogance? Well, everyone sins. Preacher, don't you know that? Everyone sins. Who am I to judge? Oh, you know, know, it's not none of my business what they do. Nah. Oh, you know, um, they're only hurting themselves. Well, let's go on the defense. It's none of your business. Those are arrogant statements. Because what they say against the community that God has created, that there is no community. There is no authority over God's design for this family. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a family feud, not a family fueled by love. It's arrogant. And the allowances are just, well, could be worse. There are worse things. And let's just be honest. We as a church do that. We as a people, whether you're Eastgate Baptist or you're the church down the road with a different name, we have allowances. Uh, well, that's that sin's okay. As long as they're not this. We categorize it. Are we out of our minds? Yes, there are sins that make us more destructive. In this world, but all sin has made us guilty before God. I admit that. That's not an unbiblical pattern. There are sins that are more destructive. Killing somebody and and hurting them is much more destructive than, oh, you look really nice today and totally lying about it. It's much more destructive. But you know what? Both of them will lead you straight to if you don't know Jesus. But we take this custom where we've began labeling what sins are acceptable or we're going to be okay with. And then we deal with the arrogance. It's like it's not my place or it's not their place. And then we deal with the allowances. And what we find is ourselves just completely paralyzed with complacency. Paul is not willing to stay there. Paul acknowledging that you know what? What? I did have a part in you as a local church, but as a member of the entire universal church that God has put together from all corners of the world, I am with you in spirit. I am with you in mourning. And I cannot be complacent. I cannot be silent. This has got to be dealt with. You've got to depart from complacency. Don't be arrogant. Emphasis number three. There must be a deliverance for correction. There must be a deliverance for correction. It says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit with the power of our Lord, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You said, well, that sounds like mean and cruel. What Paul's talking about here is excommunication. It's one of those things that we do not like to address as Christians. We may have heard about it in movies about other um, other organized parts of the faith like Catholicism. They have excommunication. But it is a form of church discipline. And here is how it is. You have chosen by your sin to separate yourself from the call to holiness of this assembly. You have done this. Now we are calling for a... a, a, a response of repentance and restoration. But should you choose not to, what you are saying is I would rather keep doing this than being a part of this. And there's no need to muddy the waters on those things. It is an act of grace. It is meant to be. But what you're saying is I would rather be a part of the world and its domain and its ruling Authority, which is the enemy, rather than a part of God's family. Living and abiding by God's Word in the spirit of His presence, in the guidance of His grace. And so if there's going to be a deliverance for correction in these moments, when they happen, when they occur, the Bible lays out the way way to do this. Jesus Himself spoke about the way to do this. That if you as a brother or sister in Christ know of open sin that is happening in a life it's up to you to go to that person in love in the hope of restoration first he goes on to say that if you're if that doesn't happen then you were to take one or two other brothers or sisters in christ with you i would probably take people that are not really to pitch stones probably people steeped in prayer and love over the person and you're to go to that person And see if you can lead them towards restoration. And if then it doesn't happen, then you are to bring them to the assembly. And if even then there's not a moment of repentance and restoration, this is not casting stones, this is intervention, then you're supposed to let the person go. Apparently in this place, in 1 Corinthians, in the church at Corinth, this has gotten to the assembly point. There's no lack of correction. So here's what we're going to need for deliverance towards correction. One, there's going to be the need for a reality check. Alright, come face to face with what's there. There's going to be a need for a repentance call. And this may not be just for the one person. This may be for all. Paul is writing to the church saying, you're arrogant. All of you need to come to a moment of repentance, but this person going to be dealt with. There needs to be a restoration council. Help the person, help the brothers, help the sisters to get where they need to be. Don't just push them away. But understand that God calls us. His kindness leads us to repentance. It leads us to restoration, not rejection. And ultimately, there needs to be a rejection of callousness if the persons or per- person or persons are so rejecting and they're callous, You know what callouses are, right? That's when you develop like, you know, hard things in your fingertips or other places because of usage. Yeah. I, you know, I'm thankful I'm I'm getting a few more on my hands with the the bass up here. I'm sure like Stefan probably has like monster fingertip fret calluses from the guitar because he's amazing. But, um, that develops as a hardening due to use. When that happens to a heart because of being torn asunder over sin, and it will not come to repentance, then drastic measures have to be taken. We call it hard love. It's not meant to hurt the person. It's meant to lead them towards restoration. But it's called them to mind that they've got to have this awakening moment. For the prodigal son, it wasn't until he got to the point where he was desiring pig slop that he had that awakening moment. You, can you imagine that? Given all that wealth from his father, been able to spend it and live a life he wanted to, and then utterly left alone and decrepit to the point where he was hiring himself out to feed pigs and so starving, he wanted to eat pig trash. And yet that was the moment that led him back. And what happened with the father? He embraced him. He restored him. He said, put the ring on the finger. Put the robe around his neck. Clean him up, kill the fat and calf. The one who was dead is now alive. He was lost, but now he's found. That's the heart of our Savior for that awakening to occur. And sometimes it takes difficult moments. I have brothers and sisters in Christ, there's children, they're, they're people of faith, they're ministers of the gospel, and their children have walked away, walked away, and they're just torn and twisted. Showing complete love and prayer for that person over and over again. But knowing that they cannot yield to what God has said, this is the way and you know it. There's got to be deliverance for correction. There's got to be a disinfection of corruption. A disinfection of cleaning out he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven? leavens the whole batch of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, with the, not with the old leaven or the leaven of malice and envy, evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now you may wonder, what is the deal with the leaven? What, is, what does all that even mean? Well, one of the things that God had required the people of Israel to do in the Old Testament was to try to not use leaven. And in the case of the Passover, in the case of the feast, it was absolutely prohibited. Because leaven is yeast. It's a fungus. It's a bacteria. Left unchecked, it can hurt you badly. And so it was just better to remove it. And so when it came to the Passover, when we were celebrating the absolute authority and power and love and sacrifice of God to rescue a people, the days of preparation leading up to it, they would clean up their entire house, making sure it was spick and span. They were doing their best to disinfect it so they would have no corruption of leaven whatsoever. By the way, this is where the term spring cleaning came from. And so they would clean it out And on the day of Passover, they would absolutely have no leaven in the house. Everything would be prepared. And what Paul is saying here, don't you understand, that just a little bit can do a lot of damage. Just a little bit changes everything. So get rid of it. Not because you've got to make yourself ready for the Lord, but because Jesus is already the one who made Himself available to us. He is that Passover that came and stopped the enemy of death that dealt with the problem and oppression of slavery of sin. He is the One. And so now we do not celebrate this feast with any malice or evil thinking, oh, we're better than all those other people outside. No, we celebrate it with sincerity and truth knowing that it's Jesus that has changed us and restored us. He says He writes to us a letter. And he emphasizes the fact that there must be a disinfection from corruption, but there also must be a distance between the causes of calamity and us. Paul deals with quite a few things here. He deals with immorality, obviously, of the sexual nature. This was something they had to unlearn. The temple of Aphrodite was in Corinth. So part of their worship activities, a part of their worship activities was they could go to the temple of Aphrodite offer their homage, their monies, but also uh, offer their worship through activities with temple prostitutes. So their idea of worship was already kind of warped before they came to Christ. And that had to be unlearned. And here he's saying, this activity of sexual immorality, this, what you're accustomed to, cannot be the continual allowance in your life. You've got to deal with this. Because it's not right in the eyes of the Lord who created you. And by doing this thing of immorality, what you're treating people like is just people based as animal instinct. You're not treating them like another person. You're not treating yourself like a person created in the image of God. We'll look at that a little bit later in these letters to 1 and 2 Corinthians. Immorality takes man to its basest sense of instant gratification. You've got to deal with the fact that there's indulgence. The drunkard's. Those that are just seeking or excuse me not the drunkards, the greedy. those that are just seeking to gratify and earn whatever they can from anybody else. They're making it all about themselves, and those that are dealing with idolatry, worshiping someone else other than the Lord, which is leading to verbal abuse, this injustice, which is leading to drunkenness, intoxication, which is leading to swindling or inflicting pain upon others, cheating them. There's going to be a distance between you and these causes of calamity. Because if you just keep surrounding yourself and surrounding yourself and surrounding yourself with that in those that are meant to teach you, guess what? What they're doing is going to rub off. That's why it's not good to teach your children, do as I say, not as I do. That's a correction we've got to do in our life. Because the chances are they're going to rub off on what we're doing rather than what we're saying are very, very high. Paul saying if this is the activity within the church you need to deal with it. Now he does make a claim here and I need to take this point to ma- remind you. He says now I am not. I am not talking about all the outside filth of culture. I'm not talking about all the outside problems, the things that you see on the news, the things that you drive by when you're on Dord highway. I'm not talking about that stuff. You shouldn't be partaking in some of that stuff as a church, as a Christian. Absolutely, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be looking at certain things on the screen on your computer. Absolutely, you shouldn't. But what I'm saying here is I am talking about judgment within those who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. You have no right to judge those outside that body. None. God's the one that's going to judge that. But within the house of God, within the family of Jesus Christ, there needs to be a correction. And that's where you see emphasis number six. There must be a discipline towards character that there's something that God has created you, making you, and making up you become a person that is a masterpiece, God's poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That all of this is disciplining us towards character. But that's not the only emphasis. It's not so that you can be better. It's not so that you can be stronger or faster or smarter. All those things are good. But you can get training in that when you go to university. You can get training in that when you go to the gym. You can get training in that when you just pull up an app on your phone. If you want to be better, smarter, faster, stronger. If you want real character, if you want real change, it's from emphasis number seven. There must be a devotion to Christ, which is the overarching letter of First Corinthians. It's about our devotion to Him that changes everything, because He's the only one that can change us. Now I know may be tempting. To be steered away from this. Especially if you're here today and you don't know Jesus. You know, no one wants you know, no one, as far as the enemy. The enemy wants no one to come to this place of devotion with Christ. They don't. Man, they want he he wants to sow seeds of distraction. He wants to snatch away the seeds of scripture. How does he do that? Well, he keeps people from talking about scripture in the first place. That's one way. You know, whenever you're trying to tell people about what the right things to do and, and you try to get around to it, but you don't actually tell the Scripture, you don't actually tell about the Word of Faith, um, that's a part of the enemy's work. Because, I mean, how is someone going to know Jesus without knowing the Scripture? Without you showing them what it says? Sometimes they'll use distractions to keep us from the Word. This happens during a worship service at times. I'm glad we have baby cries. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm glad people feel comfortable if they need to get up and use the bathroom because you know what? I'm not your boss. I'm not your mama. But you know what? Sometimes those little distractions, we think, what in the world is that? And all of a sudden, we're not focused on what God may have for us. Sometimes our worries get magnified. Sometimes we, inten- it, we intensify a relationship with divisions in the church and, and we start looking and thinking about, well, that person's like that person. That person does this person. This person doesn't like me. And we start looking at that. Sometimes we, we get reminded of what we'll miss if we'll follow God. Well, if you start following the Lord, those things that you're accustomed to, those things that you allow, you're going to have to deal with those. Sometimes we get convinced that the Word itself is untrustworthy. Sometimes our attention is turned to something else. We begin our doodles. We begin reading in the bulletin. And there's nothing wrong with doodles as long as it's focused towards what God is wanting you to learn in that day. Sometimes we get the sin of yesterday resurrected in our minds and it just pushes us down. And sometimes we get offered false confidence in our walk with God. Lord, you're okay. That's for other people. As we must deal with the problem of sin and the struggle, how do we apply that awakening? I just want to give you a few last notes. First, we need to deal with it verbally. We can't be afraid to speak to the problem. Whether it's a problem we're having or out of love for a brother and sister in Christ, we go to them in love. Secondly, we need to deal with it mentally. We need to go to the Scripture and have our mind renewed about the reality and the offensiveness of sin. We need to deal with it emotionally. We need to do, as Paul says, to mourn over the brokenness. To feel for a brother and sister in Christ when they go through that struggle. Not bless their heart. We need to deal in grief with, over it. And we need to rejoice over the healing. When we see people taking steps of restoration, we need to rejoice with them and let them know we're still there for the next step. We're still there. We need to physically take actions that are necessary in our life. Sometimes that means cutting a cord. Sometimes that means not being at home alone. Sometimes that means not going to places with others alone. Sometimes that means, hey, maybe leadership's not available for you right now. We need to deal with it relationally. I didn't have that on the slide. But we need to take counsel from those God has placed near us. Our spouses, our brothers and sisters, whether they're biological followers of Christ or they are in the church. And we need to deal with it spiritually in all these things. We need to trust the Lord. Because what He does is always a demonstration of His glory. It's always a demonstration of His grace. And it's always propelled through the power that is found in the Gospel. That we do have a great problem. But in Christ, we have a greater solution. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You for this time that we've had today. And I pray that as we come to a moment of response, that is exactly what we will do. That we will respond. We'll respond to who You are, to what You have done through the cross, through the the presentation of Your Scripture to us, and what You're doing in this moment. Respond to what You say and realize that what You say is good for our life. It's grace-filled. It's Gospel-centered. And it's glory-giving to You and it will ultimately bring about our good. So Jesus, help us respond in this time to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this time. And here's what I want to ask you. I talked about the problem of sin and having that struggle. we have those problems... And it can leave a lack of peace in our life. And so today I just want to ask you, when it comes to the battles of your life, when it comes to where you are with the Lord today, I want to know, do you have peace with God? This is a practice we've started doing pretty much every week. It's a way for us to reaffirm and repraise the Lord for, for what He's done in our life. That if you are a follower of Christ, the Bible tells us that you have peace with God and that He has placed His power and presence in you to deal with the battle of sin. And today, if you go to Him, He says, I forgive you, I love you, and I will help restore you. But today, I want to ask you in this moment, do you have peace with God? If that's you and and you celebrate that, you acknowledge and are grateful for the peace that God has provided for you, would you just raise your hand? I just want to encourage you and praise the Lord with you today, thanking Him for what He has done, for the peace that comes from Him. Amen, brothers. Amen, sisters. Now I'm going to ask the other part of that question, because there were some that did not raise their hand. and. I've said every week, you know, I have a weird accent. They may not have understood the question. But if you are a person in this room and you say, Pastor, I, I, I couldn't answer that question because I don't have peace with God. I recognize that in my life. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. because Not because I want to judge you. Not because I want to cast on you. I'm not going to do that. It's because I want to pray for you. I want to pray God's restorative grace on your life. So that's you today, and you say, "Pastor, pray for me." I don't have peace with God. Would you raise your hand? I'll confess, there were people that raised their hands the first time I asked the question, and there were some that didn't in this room. That no one wanted to raise their hand to ask for prayer, but if you're in this room and you're struggling with that need for peace with God, it would be wrong of me and cruel of me just to say, well, you didn't raise your hand, so I'm not going to share. That would be the cruelest thing of all. To let you walk out of this room and not know the peace that is offered by Jesus Christ. And that today you can have that peace with God. If you're longing for it, if you recognize and the Holy Spirit is telling you, you need this. You can do it first by admitting that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That there's a problem of sin, but the Savior is the greatest solution. By admitting your need and calling out to help, much like a person drowning in the sea would call out for a rescue boat, you're calling out for the hand of God to rescue you. Secondly, by con- believing that Jesus is who He says He is. That He is the person the Bible declares Him to be that He is Messiah, He is King, He is Savior, He is Lord, He is God, and He died on the cross for us and rose again so that we can have victory over sin and death just as He does. And lastly, by confessing this Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You don't make Him, Lord. He already is that. But you're confessing that now you lay your life and surrender down to His feet, knowing that He is God, He is King, He's the one that saves, and you're confessing, I am giving my life back to Him, the one who created it and the one who is now restoring it. But you're confessing that you will follow Him. You're confessing your sins to Him, for Him to cleanse, and confessing your need for salvation. If that's you today, you can pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I admit today I need Your help. I'm a lost sinner in need of a Savior. And today I believe that You are who You say You are. You are Savior and Lord. God, King, Messiah. That You died in my place and You rose again. I confess that I want to follow You as my Lord. I confess today that I need to be saved. I confess that I lay down my life in Your hands. Forgive me and help me to follow after You. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, while every eye is closed, every head is bowed, I'm going to ask one more question. If that was to you today, if you prayed that prayer today and you said, Pastor, I need you to call on the Lord for peace, I just want to give you a chance to so, raise your hand. I want to pray for you and help you take next steps as a follower of Christ. I don't want you to feel like you have to do this alone. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Music's going to play for just a few more minutes, a few more moments. Now, I recognize that our invitation sometimes is heavily focused on those who need to come to Christ for the first time. But I also recognize that there's a need to put a call out there, because sometimes people that are disciples have dealt with struggles. They just need someone to pray for them. They need someone to help them take that next step to walk with them and encourage them. Maybe it's to unite with the church, be planted with it. Or maybe it's that next step as a disciple. We're just going to give a few more moments. And if you need someone to talk to, I'm going to be down here at the front to counsel and pray with. Or If you have a life group leader or brother or sister in Christ that you're familiar with and you want to go and talk with them, pray with them, please feel free to do that in this moment. But you follow as the Lord leads. Stand with us as we uh, prepare to depart from this place.